Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. Ramadan Kareem to everyone, all our listeners. Uh, I hope you're having a good Ramadan. It's day seven, and I know people in the office here, everyone is a bit more relaxed, have a reflective month, uh, and I think that was kind of needed. It's been a hectic time. Expo has ended, uh, start of the year has flown by, and the weather is getting cooler, although still nice and fresh out in the mornings and evenings. So our guests are still coming in. Uh, we're still doing uh, Dubai works throughout the month, and we had our 162nd, I think, episode today. Uh, it's a really interesting business story. I could have kept asking, Gary, lots of questions. I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's kind of similar to Humantra conversation that we had uh, a few months ago, or also with Brew Society in this sort of drinks category. So if after this uh, podcast that you enjoyed uh, listening to Gary, uh, you can go back and listen to those ones as well. of Dubai Works Business Podcast. This week I'm joined by Gary Lavin. He's the founder of Fit Hit. They are a low-calorie low beverage company created with the intention of becoming an alternative sugar to the sugar-filled drinks that are dominating the industry. So today we're going to talk about the story of Fit Hit, uh, how they became a replacement to soft drink beverages, and also the beverage industry in general, uh, and looking ahead to the future, what Gary and Vitit have planned for the future and how he's ended up in Dubai. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. I should Thanks say good me. afternoon. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to the show. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming me. in. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about Vitit? Sure. Um, I started uh, the company back in 2000, uh, so a long, long time ago. Um, gave me grey hair. For those of you on the podcast can't see, I have, <laughs> have grey hair. Did you uh, have grey hair before, white hair before? <clears throat> well, no, no, no. I, I think a, oh. a, lot of, a lot of years of business stress can give you that. Yeah. So um, I started a drinks company basically off the back of, um, I used to see people on treadmills and taking in sports drinks back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and people always thought sports drinks were healthy. But um, I was a sports person myself, and I knew a little bit more than the average person. I had a bit of knowledge, and I knew that most sports drinks have lots of sugar, so about 28 grams of sugar in your average sports drink. And uh, I kind of had an aha moment. I was watching someone on a treadmill one day, bursting a gut, and then they took in a whole bottle of one, I think it was Powerade years ago. And uh, I was like, wow, there has to be another way. So that was kind of, I started researching into it before the internet. And... Uh, I so in other words, like that drink that they're taking is defeating the purpose of the calories they're trying to lose because it's so full of sugar. Yeah, without getting too technical, when you um, run on a treadmill um, for half an hour, you'll burn, um, you know, maybe about 180 to 200 calories uh, for about 30 minutes. And uh, those drinks and that sugar relates to about the same amount of calories. So you can run on a treadmill for half an hour, take in a bottle of one of those ADE drinks, one of those um, sugary drinks, and you won't have burnt anything so you're kind of defeating the purpose of getting on a getting on a treadmill so i just thought there has to be another way and that's kind of where the idea of it hit came okay fair enough and so when was that and what era was that and and you you mentioned you were a sports 
person. We haven't actually had like an ex-athlete on the show like this, and I guess it brings up the topic of what do uh, professional footballers or rugby players do afterwards. So how did that come about, and was that the stage where you're kind of going, oh, what do I do after my career? Are we always an entrepreneur? I was always entrepreneurial, but my parents are entrepreneurs. Um, I um, was a professional rugby player at the time. I got injured when I was 24, but I had been buying and selling products to my friends. Um, I realized that at the time, um, it was back in like late 90s, early 2000s, guys really didn't spend too much money on themselves like they do now. Everyone, you know, uh, takes protein and protein drinks and all that kind of stuff and takes supplements. And I mean, back then, it was actually men had only started taking moisturizer in Dublin. It was mm. like, a, it was it was a very, very different different time and place so when um, we actually put the products on the market uh, the first thing people said to me was oh it's just another sports drink and so I had to change buyers minds and change uh, consumers minds as well mm. so that was a big that was the hardest part for me at the time but as a professional athlete at the time I knew not to be taking sports drinks and so basically I know you do you do a good bit of triathlon and cycling and that kind of stuff and what you'll know is at, at your level when you're really expending a lot of energy you can take in sugars and in fact you should be or else you're just going to disappear you're going to get really really slim but that's not for 99% of people who exercise they actually want to burn fat and too much sugar um, creates excess fat because your body can't process it so that was the general basis of which I was creating these drinks I wanted something that just didn't have any sugar in it at all and, and hence I created Vitit. Okay so it was so it's not necessarily a high-end performance drink or it is or it's more like as we said at the intro to replace those sugary soft drinks that people are consuming on a regular basis. Yeah it's it's, it was originally designed not as a performance or sports drink. It's it's basically to replace sugary drinks that just aren't good for you. So it took about two years to design the products without sugars to taste just as good as sugary drinks. So that, that was really this, the strong basis behind this is that I wanted a product that looked just as good as those sugary drinks out there and that tasted just as good but had you know 80% less sugar. And in terms of vitamins, uh, the Vithit name, are, are there supplements in this as well? Is there nutritional benefits? Yeah, um, so we have 100% recommended daily allowance of about eight different vitamins in there. We have the equivalent of uh, one and a half cups of tea um, concentrated in tea leaves in there as well. So you get the benefits of tea, you get that energizing tea. And then we'll also throw a couple of um, minerals or herbs in there, depending on the type of uh, uh, reaction that we want to get out of the drink. So we've got one product, the green one, which is called Lean and Green and that's just really low in calories and it's great for exercising um, we have another one immunity which has zinc and vitamin C yeah um, which is this one here yeah um, and he that'll keep on the table for those yeah exactly yeah. yeah so that'll keep away colds and flu so there's just uh, and especially now since the pandemic uh, people just want to be taking more vitamins anyway in their days I've just been doing it since I was young I was always a guy taking vitamins but actually I never liked taking in vitamin tablets I just couldn't swallow them mm. so the process behind this was you know why can't you have lots of vitamins in a drink have it actually tasting nice and have no sugar now that took two years to formulate with a lot of work mm. and a lot of science um, but we got there in the end so you so you're basically providing supplements and uh, a, a soft drink in a way uh, and how did the how did the product launch go how were the early years was it a hit straight away no pun intended no no it certainly wasn't a bit <laughs> hit at the start no it was a I suppose it, it was a bit of a disaster at the start um, I think a lot of people would have, would have given up um, I, I just had to stay determined because I genuinely believed that people eventually would would get would 
cop onto it. I mean, 21 years ago, 22 years ago, one of these flavors um, that I have on the table here is still the very same flavor, but the product was in completely different packaging, completely different brand name. So originally the product was called Vitz, V-I-T-Z, because in my mind, I thought that Vitz meant vitamins. And uh, after three years of selling virtually no product, um, I couldn't afford any research. So we went to uh, we went to a university and I got some free research done. And the university kids looked at it and went, oh, Weitz, it must be German. And I was okay. like, oh, wow, okay. I, I, never, I, never, I never got it. <laughs> so it took three weeks of, of head scratching. And then I came up with the, I woke up one morning and I was like, Wittes, maybe I've heard that before. And um, I went online and I registered Wittes.com and... I couldn't believe that no one had thought of it before. Yeah. It was just one of those eureka moments. I don't yeah. know where the idea came from, I don't know where the name came from, but it just came to me. And once I registered the name, changed it, it was in the same bottle, changed the label, the product just took off. Sales rose by 250% overnight, Amazing. just from a brand name. Wow. But that, there's a couple of things in that. One is the sort of the struggle at the start. Because, you know, like... Actually, it's natural that businesses don't struggle at the start. Like, it, 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 that's what the barrier to entry is, is that, you know, market share, product fit, marketing and all these things, like, can't just happen overnight. But then uh, that persistence then to pivot, to change the name, because people are attached to names, right? Like, whether we have social handles or whether we mm. have licenses or branding, like, you had three years worth of mm. work done on one name. Yeah. And... Killed it overnight. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of entrepreneurship is you have to be brave. I mean, I, I, I was losing money with the original company, so the other option was to get a real job, and I didn't want to do that. So, uh, yeah. You were just looking for solutions all the time. What can I make? Just keep changing it till it's right. And from that day, we got it right, which was, you know, we changed the brand name and then changed the bottle and all that kind of stuff. We haven't, I haven't touched the label um, since probably 2009. Haven't touched it. Wow. Because I think, you know, you do all those changes to make sure you, you get it right. And I knew myself it wasn't right. And moving the bottle, changing the label, changing the brand name, changing the messages on the side. Once we got it right, you just don't touch it because I know we have something really strong here. And every country we go into, it's, it becomes the, the best seller in the country pretty fast. Very good. So 2009. So what what was right then? What size of business were you kind of nine, ten years in? Oh, we were really struggling at the time, just before '09. I mean, um, we were the first few years we were turning over. The first four or five years I was turning over like fifty thousand euros, seventy thousand euros. It really wasn't going anywhere. Then around '09, I'd say we were at about seven hundred to eight hundred grand uh, business. So ten times higher, yeah, longer. And Gary, what are the margins on that? If you're bringing in a hundred thousand dollars or whatever, does that mean you're making money? Um, it depends on how many what your overheads are. So at the time, there was only two or three people working in the company. So we've been breaking even ever since '09, stroke making profit. Um, and actually, we were really struggling before that. Um, I had a team of salespeople, and I had to let them all go. I had to do the sales myself. Um, we had to really, really pare back. And um, I suppose I had to get my hands dirty to really understand you know, the, the whole process of going out selling. I got in my car, I drove up and down the country in Ireland and I sold the product personally into about three and a half thousand stores over a certain amount of time because if I hadn't done that, I was, I, I had, you know, the company was insolvent. I, I was going broke. There was no doubt about it. So I had to just do it myself. So by pairing all that back, we were certainly losing money before I had to let the salespeople go. And literally overnight, once the salespeople were gone, there was no more drain on the company. It was mm. just me and one more guy. And uh, then we could afford to pay ourselves and actually move the company 
on to the next level. And then when you started making funds, you reinvested. And I, so and to, let's go back a little bit. So in terms of a business plan, what was the idea here? How did that, you, we're in Dubai now, you, we'll catch up, but you're successful in many countries and I'll let you explain that as well. But was that always the plan or was it, you know, I believe in the product, let's see where it goes? A little bit of both. Um, but one of the mistakes I made early was I, I thought that I could take over the world with no plan at all. So literally when I created the very first product, which was called Vitz, started in Ireland, wanted to take it into the UK, and it just it didn't hold at all. So I had to retreat, retrench, and put a stake in the ground in Ireland and say, okay, I need this to become a leading brand in the country. And then just don't move out of that country until you're successful, you're making profits, and then use those profits to go to the next country. We're not one of these companies um, who goes off to venture capital and raises money. We've never been that kind of company. Um, and back in the day, nobody would give me money anyway. We couldn't get money from banks. We couldn't get money um, from crowdfunding. There was none of that available. So, um, yeah, I, I no realized famous celebrities wanted to back you like um, 50 Cent did with. No, with, that um, was all, all before that, yeah. Vitamin Water, yeah. With Vitamin Water, yeah. <laughs> they ended up selling for 3.8 billion. So maybe I should have gone that Maybe I should have gone that <laughs> Should have got some American rapper to back you, yeah. yeah. But, you know, the product, um, it took time to, to, to become a success in Ireland. And once I did that, then about 2013, it took a few years to become a market leader in Ireland. Um, so it was a long old haul. And once we got to that stage, then I moved into the UK, and the UK was when it really spiked. It really started to change. And market leader in Ireland, to put that in perspective, what was the category or what's the size there? So um, well, in Ireland, we kind of created the whole category. There wasn't really a wellness category on the shelves and drinks. So um, I think to this day, we still have about 87% of the wellness um, category in Ireland. Yeah. Um, it's really called a functional drink category. Um, but uh, we're now the sixth best-selling product of any type in Ireland uh, in drinks. So we outsell Diet Coke, we outsell um, Tropicana, we don't sell Innocent, Evian, Volvic Water, all of those major brands. So wow. in, in Ireland, it's it's a very large brand now. Amazing. And we'll talk about category uh, in a second. But so then the market into the UK, the UK is obviously a bigger market than the Irish market. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, what size bigger is it? And uh, how did you approach that first market entry? What did you do different? Um, the UK is about uh, 10 times the size of Ireland um, if you're on the same level of success. We're still not on that level of success in the UK. Um, we are the biggest selling functional drink um, in takeaway in the UK, which is which is saying something. But um, pound for pound, Ireland is still our, our best selling country. Um, the process in the UK is a bit different. Um, the UK buyers... Um, rely a lot on data or data, whatever, whatever part of the world you're coming from. So we had to prove um, to a lot of ears that weren't listening what a great seller we were. And uh, you know, you're going into massive company, massive corporations like Tesco, uh, Co-op Sainsbury's, and telling them, well, we've got this great product. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it different? And they're just going, OK, show me some data. And we didn't have any in the UK. So we really had to create some. Um, so what I used is our success in Tesco in Ireland to give ourselves um, a base to go into Tesco in the UK. We got a trial in Tesco in the UK. And that was so successful. Then Sainsbury's came knocking on the door, and then we went into Boots and W. H. Smith, and we got a lot of uh, headline uh, companies then. So even though the product, uh, the name was right and the label was right, you still had to almost drive around, and you still had to do the the early things that you did in Ireland to get it off the ground. Yeah, in 2014. Um, Tesco uh, gave me a listing, and we were down the back of the store. And if you know anything about soft drinks, you've got to be at the front of the store in the fridges. 
So I kept saying to the buyer and the, uh, the commercial director there, I kept saying to them, look, we really need to be in the front of store. And the buyer kept going, um, no, you know, you're, you're not ready yet. So I was waited a year politely. And then eventually I um, hired myself a moped and I got in the back of the moped in December 2014, coming into 2015. And um, I, drove, I drove myself around to uh, 40 stores um, around where I lived all across London. And I convinced the local managers to stick our products on the shelf beside the big ones like vitamin water, etc. And uh, I was driving through sleet and snow, so it wasn't fun. So then I hired, I hired a sales guy and I said, look, just look after those 50 accounts for six months. And six months later, we got some internal data and it showed that actually Vitted was number one, three, four and five bestsellers out of all the convenience drinks in the shelves. So then we got listed. Wow. OK, interesting. And so we're fast forward sort of eight years. We're in Dubai. Is this... Are you doing the same again now in the UAE? Do you, you mentioned you lived in London, so do you move to the market to kind of launch there? Is that what and is Vitit in the market and how's it doing? Is it? I haven't bought a moped here yet. No, it's, it's a bit too hot. <laughs> one of those scooters that people yeah. are going around and in. The drivers are a bit too crazy. It'd be a bit dangerous. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, it it depends on the size of the market. Yes, the Gulf region here has massive potential, and we've been selling here for about four years, and it's getting it's getting bigger all the time. Um, it just depends on, um, on on what the market needed. At the time, the UK was really needed. I needed to go to the UK. Um, we've got a good team here already. Um, I didn't need to come here, but I just felt that after the pandemic, in a general business sense, I felt I didn't need to be in Ireland anymore. Um, before I had to be in Ireland to kind of meet, meet um, uh, all the employees and meet all the, the buyers, etc. But you can do all that online now. So I figured what better time. It was the only bonus out of a terrible two years that we all had is that actually you can now do your work. It's accepted that you can do your work in other countries. Mm. So um, I, I basically said to my wife and uh, said look you know let's let's move and she said okay where do you want to go and I said we've got a good business in Dubai we need to grow in that region why not move over there for, for a few years so came here about seven months ago and I don't regret it a bit yet because <laughs> yeah you're here for now um so sort of like 22 years or so into the business uh you know obviously it's successful it's market leader in some countries uh what what sort of size company is it what category we can talk about how the category developed, but are you kind of happy with where this is now? Or do you, do you see that, wow, this is sizable. I never thought I'd be this size. Um, I don't think any entrepreneur is ever happy where they are. Um, like this year we'll sell 35 million bottles or, and cans of world. Um, and if you'd have t told me that 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. So, number, so yeah. on one side of the coin, yes, you know, I'm really content with how it is. But I don't think any entrepreneur would actually ever sit down and say, that's it, I'm, we're done growing. We like to grow at between 20 and 25% a year, no matter what year it is, no matter what level we're at, and we'll do the same this year. So um, a lot of our growth areas would be certainly here around the Gulf region. Um, we're growing at a really fast pace in Australia at the moment. Um, and uh, our other countries uh, like Holland and Belgium have a lot of growth to happen as well. Uh, interesting. So uh, what about the, we could talk about the future, but what about the other markets it's obviously it's a global brand uh yeah. you've done successful market entry australia uae uk uh, how do you view market entry and how do you pick these markets like belgium and other markets mm. 
it's, it's still a little bit of scratch it and see. Um, it depends on if we have a, a good distributor that approaches us. A lot of the time we turn down distributors if they just don't think they're strong enough. Um, it depends on the relationship that I might build with them. Um, so one of them, for instance, um, in, in Belgium, I spotted a really, really strong distributor. And I contacted him probably eight or ten times, both on email and phone calls. And he kept saying, don't, don't like it. I wouldn't take no for an answer. So eventually, um, I sent him an email and I said, uh, well, we're now in, he, so he was in Belgium. I said, we're now in France, Holland, um, Germany, Austria. I said, we have you surrounded. I said, you know, the product is going to come in whether you like it or not. I think you should get involved. So he kind of laughed and said, okay, we'll take it on. And we're now his third best selling product that he has. And it's growing probably 35, 36% a year. And he loves, wow. he loves us. He, he thinks we're now. great. <laughs> He's delighted that we, that we pushed him. So that was just, you know, a feeling that you have, um, a lot of the time you basically just say, wow, those distributors are really good. We know that they will, um, do um, a strong job for us. Um, we're currently, um, we've got, um, in talks with a really good distributor in Kuwait currently. So I'm flying up week's time and sit down with those guys and have a chat and see if we can come to some sort of a, an agreement so it really is just a feeling that you get um if you have enough money to expand you can't go too fast um you know if you're expanding at uh, you know 20 percent a year um uh, your costs will rise significantly so you've just got to have really good people in the background um okay. so i'm the one that kind of makes the overall decisions and i have people much sharper than me you know doing the maths and kind of going well you know you can't spend that there you need to pull back there okay wow interesting that's so interesting relating the market the growth of the company with the market entry as well but uh, to understand the industry a little bit more when you say distributors are they crucial uh, for market entry uh, is that still now with sort of the direct consumers are the distributors really the key holders in markets and what is their remit do they manufacture or do they literally you get the products manufactured and where you manufacture it and you and they order from you and they put your bottles on the shelves with their mopeds and they get yeah, the sales. Yeah, distributors are an essential part of it. Like, if you have the worst and you have a great distributor, they'll get you on the shelf once. Um, if you have a brilliant product with no distributor, you'll never get on the shelf. So we have a great product. And once you have a good distributor, they'll get you on the shelf. Um, because if I'm, let's say, to go to a country that I've never stepped foot in, let's say all the relationships with the likes of Spinney's, Carrefour, those kind of companies. He's calling into them every day. He has relationships with the buyers. So I will produce the product. I'll send it across the water to him. He will make his 25, 30% on top of that. He'll sell it to the retailer and the retailer will then make a percentage on top of that. Um, there, you can go directly to retailers, but if you do, um, you know, you need to have um, sales developers going in, making sure your product's um, on the shelf at all times. So distributors are a really essential part of it. And do any companies like yours have their own distributors, or like is is the system sort of fixed? Is this how it works? If you're if you're no, that's a good question. You, you can actually have your own distributors. Um, uh, we do a lot of our own stuff in in the UK. Um, we don't in Ireland, um, which is strange. But we have one of the best, well, the, the best independent distributor in the country, uh, in Ireland. Uh, we use them. They're the Red Bull distributors, and uh, they have so much experience. So mm. we basically, you know, we've great relationship with those guys i couldn't find a good enough distributor in the uk so we decided to create it we have a team of people over in the uk and um it's grown from one over the last three or four years and so they will do a lot of that uh, they'll do most of that uh, mm. of that job they'll get um, a third party just truck to basically deliver it directly to sainsbury's to tesco that kind of stuff um all of the other countries we use distributors in we'd rather not have to do that and and, and we're happy 
give a percentage to somebody else who can do it because you know and the less people and the less logistics that you have to get involved in the easier the business can be mm, interesting so talking about you know the, the history of the company and in terms of uh, consumer behavior and habits around functional drinks how would you describe how that market has changed like obviously it's a good it can be a good brand and marketing can influence purchase but clearly there's some sort of shift right like mm. when we were kids you know, we were drinking fizzy drinks, yeah. right? And mm -hmm. now, I'm not sure if kids still are, but, but basically, mm -hmm. there's definitely been a shift uh, in terms of consumption to, you've got more competitors now, yeah. you created the category. Mm. How do you, how would you describe what's happened? And do you think you've kind of followed that, your right place, right time at some degree? Yeah, to be honest, I think we were slightly ahead of the curve. So if this drink was created in 2000, people were still drinking those sugary drinks. I think social media and before that magazine articles uh, were all basically espousing the dangers of sugar around the early 2000s, but it took eight to 10 years to really seep in that, that, that you know sugar is so dangerous, not just for your teeth. We knew that back in the day, but we didn't realize that obesity was directly linked uh, to sugar. Mm. And that's one of the problems that all developing nations have. And that's one of, the, one of my personal bugbears. Um, you know, you don't have to give your kids sugary drinks. And it, it breaks my heart when I see kids overweight and the parents giving them, you know, yogurts full of sugar, muffins full of sugar, you know, colas full of sugar, all those things. It just doesn't have to be that way and that's one of the reasons that we've had a nice healthy alternative so the the people are definitely changing they're running they're going out and doing kite surfing and all that kind of stuff there's a whole new level of of consumers that are out there doing that but they're probably you know the 20 percenters and everybody behind is kind of lagging behind but before then i mean just in Ireland, for instance, um, back when we were young, nobody went out jogging at six o'clock in the morning. Nobody went to the gym. There was only three gyms in the whole of Dublin, the capital city. Mm. Um, wow. It's all changed now. There's got to be like probably 100 gyms, maybe 200 gyms in the, in, in just in Dublin alone. Personal trainers everywhere. People are jogging down the beaches. So there really has been a, a whole cultural shift. Mm. And so we were just ahead of that. So yes, the timing is absolutely great now. But when we first launched the product, nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted it because they just they didn't. They're like, no, no sugar. What's wrong with sugar? Okay. So it's not necessarily for performance. It's not necessarily, you don't need lots of high performance athletes to, to be walking down the aisles of spinnies. No. But what you've got is someone who's more health conscious, who's got a gym membership. They're filling their trolley and they see yours and they go, oh, I'm more conscious now. I'm going to buy that. Yeah, I think it's even a step back from that. Like we're so mainstream now in a lot of countries. Um, it's basically people now saying, oh, that looks like a nice product. And then they'll try it and they'll go, wow, it tastes really great. And then they look at the back and go, oh, it's really healthy. Vitamins and it's got so we like to be mainstream. So yes, the people who are who originally started taking this product were you know just wanted to cut down their sugars, but I mean um, there was a survey done in the UK recently and seventy six percent of people wanted to reduce their sugars. So it really is a mainstream uh, option now. People now know. People now are reading the back of products. They now know sugar is bad for you, and they're now counting how many sugars they need in a day. Just one really important thing for people who have kids: um, your kids should really only be taking 15 grams of sugar a day and, and as adults we can only take 25 so just a really basic thing um, to keep your kids healthy is just re start reading the back of, of sugar labels so your average can of coke contains 23 grams of sugar so if a kid has 23 grams of sugar there's seven or eight 
over. He or she has gone over in the day. And, you know, you can't work that off. And on top of that, you'll give them, you know, grapes in the evening. You might give them a little bit of ice cream or whatever. And suddenly they're on 40 grams of sugar and they can only have 15. So you just have to be so careful um, these days, um, mm. for, you know, because kids obviously come first. And, and obesity is just a, such, a ba- such a big issue at the moment. Mm. And uh, obesity is one thing, but you know, one of the reasons I cut out sugar is it just doesn't give you the right energy. It just messes up how I think. It just it mess, You know, it's like it's a, not a good substance overall, irrespective of waste, right? Like it's right. just yeah. there's so many things that are that are related to unhealthy products, I guess. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm actually uh, hyperglycemic. I, I never realized it when I was playing rugby years ago. You didn't have those tests. What so, so what that means is I used to take sugar. I'd go to the cinema at night before a game, and I'd have a big bag of sweets, and and uh, I wouldn't be able to wake up properly the next day, and mm. I'd be kind of fuzzy headed. Ah. And uh, you know that's hyperglycemia. Um, it's 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 nothing major, but it's it's just something that just impairs your 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 whole thought process and mm. it, it, it makes you less aware yeah so like there's just no benefits to sugar and if people say oh you need some sugar you get sugar in everything there's sugar in everything Fruit you do yeah. so you know i would say to someone just take as as little sugar as you can and you're gonna you're, you'll you'll just get it in your in your diet anyway. yeah interesting so about the category as well you know uh there's lots of interest in entrepreneurs and startups and things like that. And yeah, people can launch products, but often I hear, and I don't know if this is right, don't start a water or something like that. It, it just sounds like a really hard uh, industry to get into. It is, yeah. Why so? And um, a and, and follow on from that is, you know, where you where the big competitors and the incumbents, did they want to squash you? Was it Was it hard to break in? Yeah, well, the reason why it's so hard to make it is because the shelves are probably 95 to 99 percent filled with um, massive conglomerates like um, coca-cola um the company that owns lucas aid britvic all of the large companies and they have so much money invested in it that when you get on the shelf they have a hundred sales reps calling around where you might have one and so they'll just move you aside and put you to the back and so it, it really is a, a slog and a fight and i see so many brands failing year after year after year really? i would say across the world if there's if there's probably five thousand drinks brands created across the world maybe two or three might make it in wow. a year anywhere in the world like it's it's an exceptionally difficult market so first of all you have to have something that's really different it's hard to create something different second of all you have to have something that looks amazing then it's going to taste amazing and then on top of that you have to have enough cash to get you on the shelf and then you have to have a good distributor to hold you on the shelf so there's like five or six moving parts um that just make it a very very difficult business Hmm. but it's a great business once you once you get over that hump but it takes a while interesting and so as well as the behavior changes of people and consuming the product how's the purchasing changed over the years of coca-cola what's the percentage that they sell from shelves versus in cafes versus other ways that they'll sell and how do you how does your business relate to how is your split and where you sell the products well their platform uh, the likes of coke is definitely um getting smaller and they made a statement i think it was about seven or eight years ago that in order for them to grow as a brand uh, as a company they would have to buy other innovative brands because they know that their platform is burning um like people are moving away um, from from sugars, so they go into less developed countries uh, who aren't as educated, and they'll sell hmm. what they call big red. They'll sell Coca Cola 
uh, to the masses there and they keep their numbers up that way and then they buy innovative companies um, in order to do that so the developed countries are all reducing their sugar intake so slightly every year you know their platform gets a little bit smaller and companies like us are taking a little bit of eating a little bit of the pie every every time so that is a, a definite pattern that's changed um, and coca-cola is a company they're not just coke they have hundreds of brands they bought around the world so like that's waters and things as well yeah waters yeah, yeah yeah they'll have waters here they'll have waters in new zealand australia all that kind of stuff and that's how they spread themselves wider they're just not relying on just one brand anymore and but are they still i, I guess i'm getting at you know the how does one purchase a drink these days has that changed because i'm not in i can't remember when i moved here 10 years ago i used to go to spinney's once a week i haven't been inside a spinney's in five years i don't think yeah right so how has that changed? Are people buying your drink now on grocery apps? Are they? Mm. Are you in cafes as well? Or how has everything changed? <clears throat> yeah, when, when we go into any country, uh, one of the things we try and do is take over the cafe culture because that's where the, the opinion formers are. Mm. The cool people, for want of a better word, better expression. So we will always go in there and try and get them trying the product and tasting it and liking it. And once they like it, it's like a pincer. They go forward and other people will follow. And that's that's kind of the the main part of Your of how we of how we'll build our market strategy. And in a place like this, um, Dubai is it seems to be in any of the countries that I've been it seems to be way ahead on home deliveries, even than uh, UK, Australia. Um, any of the countries that we, that we work in. So this is a slightly different market. Um, so you still have to build your product in the cafe cultures, then people will know to order it online. Mm. And uh, that's a slightly different uh, way. Obviously, we sell online in most of the territories we're at. Ever since COVID, obviously, people couldn't go, get to shops. So we had to totally change our model from you know putting it in a truck and getting on a shelf to actually sending it direct to ourselves. Mm. So, um, but here, um, the direct-to-consumer or, or the online selling is just massive here so it's a slightly different thing so it's harder to get because you know you, you open a page there is no shelf there and they'll have all the biggest brands there so you're like way down on the click rate so yes you have to build it in the places the traditional places like cafes mm. and you know schools universities um, golf clubs that's kind of where we sell okay interesting so 20 something years in you know it's probably unusual for a company to be independent with one product name with a variation of uh, flavors. Yeah. Is that how you are? Do you have other businesses? Do you have other product lines coming up? And, uh, you know, are, are you, do you think that's a benefit of remaining independent in this way? Yeah, the, the, the advantage is, is that we can pivot really fast. We can add on an extra line. Um, we created um, sparkling vitted, an all-natural sparkling vitted, which we don't have here yet. We're, we're going to perhaps launch it in the next nine months here. Um, and we have lots of innovation coming through. So that's really that's the positive side. The, the downside is that you don't have the power that any of these large companies have, that when we do launch a new brand, um, so an extension like the cans that we have if if I am in the UK if I'm Britvic they're on the shelves of 25,000 stores so if they're creating a new brand they literally just go overnight bang and they'll be on 15,000 stores like in a week mm. and then they'll build it up over six months and get it into all 25,000 so that's the advantage that they, those guys have um, we have an advantage that we can make decisions really fast we don't have to go to a board um, and you know it's still it's it's still kind of touchy-feely for want of a better expression I will still say look I think we need another flavor I think we need cans. Um, I don't get bogged down in doing market research and saying, oh, you know, people like or dislike that flavor. It's just kind of a feeling and you have to trust your gut and basically say, you know, I believe that sparkling cans are the way to go. We're going to add that onto our, onto our range and, and out you go. So we've launched that in three countries so far and it's going really well. 
Yeah, and and so I guess you know other people like bigger conglomerates might have different ranges of drinks, but they might have different products as well. Like, have have you thought of that? You know, yogurts or mm. energy bars or things like that. Or yeah, I I, I actually created a, a protein bar probably in about 2012, and it failed. Um, I think it was slightly. It was just before that whole protein phase that mm. came in, um, and. I think the reason why it failed is because you know we were so focused on our bottles, we never really gave it the attention that it was due. And I think that changed my mindset in that not I'm afraid to extend the brand into that. You know, we will probably go into food products eventually, um, but we're really good at, at products and the world is a very big place. Mm. So if we're really good at something, that's what we lead with. So uh, know what you're good at and just keep doing that just in more places. Mm. But is it, is it a natural thing, like you mentioned, or I mentioned Vitamin Morty, but you mentioned it was acquired, but is it a natural thing if you're so, that you would be attractive to conglomerates mm. who are, as you said, who are like Coca-Cola, are looking at the trendy new products. Sure. Have you had offers? Are you, are you happy enough with where the business is going at the moment? Yeah, we grow at about 25% a year. So when you get up to a certain level, that's, that's excellent. You know, it's, it's a really good. Definitely. It's easy to grow 25% a year when you're going from when 50 to 75. <laughs> but, you know, when you're, you're, you're turning over in, ex in excess of, you know, 17 million euros, uh, you're getting up to 20, um, it becomes a really good thing to add on, extra 25% of that. So, yes, we've been approached on multiple occasions. Um, I, I would never say never. The, the only time I would ever consider, it's, you know, if so, we've been approached by people just saying, look, invest and we're like no thanks we don't need money um it's because we're a profitable company what we really want and what we lack is the really strong presence of international distribution in lots of different countries so if you want to grow really fast you know coca-colas are one of them you know one of those very large companies come along and they don't just invest money in they invest strategy mm. so they'll be able to say okay you want to launch in germany we'll get you in germany overnight or we'll get you bigger in the uk or we'll go into France. And that's the advantage that you would get from one of those companies. So I would never say never, but so far I've turned everybody down because, you know, when you're, you know, we were offered something last year and yet we're 25% uh, more again. More again. Yeah. So you kind of look at it. Now there is a stage at which you kind of go like, how much is enough? Um, but at the moment we're just having fun with it and it's a, yeah. really, it's a really enjoyable place. Like I lost money for... I'd say nine or ten years. So uh, we've been profitable since about '09. So um, I do remember the bad days. Yeah. So uh, we're just kind of enjoying grateful, it. enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's interesting. So a strategic partner might be of interest. But if you flip that around, if you had the right amount of money, you could buy a. Dis you could almost invest or acquire mm -hmm. that strategic partnership distributor network. Maybe. It's, it's it, yeah. It's it's <laughs> not, not as simple. it's not as easy. You know. Yeah. You know the large companies have barriers there for a reason. You yeah. Know, you go into any shelf across anywhere in Europe or across here, and ninety five percent of the shelf is owned by huge conglomerates. Mm. So, in order to get onto those shelves easier, you have to be part of them. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, just a money play doesn't really work in in our business. Okay. Uh, and hence that's why I've I've defended and I've stayed away from it all to this time. Fair enough. Uh, you're here. In Dubai, young family are here as well, uh, and you're running this business yeah. and, and you're enjoying it. Uh, but but it's still growing at 20, 30% a year. Mm -hmm. That's obviously, there's obviously pain points with growth. How do you manage that? How do you manage growth? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. because also the other thing about growth when you're 
been along longer is that the numbers are bigger. So the, the 30% is bigger in yeah. terms of product, managing people. So the headaches are bigger. <coughs> How do you manage that? I hire really good people and get out of their way. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a micromanager. Um, I, I trust our... Um, our CFO, managing director, um, I trust um, all of our salespeople. So they might come to me and go, okay, we really need to get into Germany. I said, okay, what's that going to cost? And we just look at it in really simple terms. And um, the CFO will usually look at me and go, it's going to cost too much money. And I'll, I'll push that as an entrepreneur should. And we'll always find somewhere in the middle. Um, but Australia, for instance, is a perfect example of what you're saying. So about four years ago, we entered Australia and um, we just couldn't get it going. Uh, we had a distributor and the distributor just wasn't working with us. And they weren't, they weren't doing their job properly. So we decided to hire a guy on the ground. Um, we paid him a significant salary. And for two years, he was pretty much treading water. Then... Uh, about a year ago, we just suddenly hit gold over there. We got into the two largest um, retailers in the country. And the product, uh, 12 months ago, per month was doing 900 cases, and now it's doing 30,000 cases a month. So the increase has been just infinite. Um, and uh, I go back to the CFO now and I say, see, you were telling me to close that place, I told you. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of thing is is just a little bit of... Um, I don't know, entrepreneurial grit that you just have to hold out, you know, because we were losing money. Um, but yeah. you've got to just hold out because and, and, you've got to grow. Yeah. So, so how, again, like, has your lifestyle changed when you were managing it? There's good people there, but they still need a leader. You, you now, yes, the digital world has allowed us to manage other entities, but it must be a strenuous enough business to run. Not anymore. No, no, because because I hire great people and get out of the way. Yeah. So we have a, a managing director there who runs the nuts and bolts of the company every day. So um, I'm kind of at a stage now where I'm more strategic, and I will basically say, right, we need new new brands, we need new extensions, we need to go into this country, okay. and I will go and meet our distributors. Um, but the day to day workings of it, I have passed that off. Amazing. And uh, lifestyle wise, it's been a, a game changer. I mean, you know, I I. I don't get stressed anymore. I don't wake up and go, what are we going to do? You know, if we can't pay that bill or any of that kind of stuff, that's other people's headaches. And, and I think that's a really important point. A lot of entrepreneurs can't let go. So they're constantly stressing. I mean, I did stress for, you know, 12, 15 years, but I don't want to have that stress anymore. And, you know, we are doing, unless people weren't, were, you know, you hired the wrong people and they're doing the wrong job, then you have to, that did happen about six years ago and I had to get back into the company and or five years ago, I had to get back in the company and, and dig it out of a, a, a certain hole. And it wasn't detrimental but you've got to keep an eye on it so I, you know i get my monthlies and bi-weekly numbers and we always see what's going on but i it, it suits it suits me and it suits my employees to just get out of their way and let them do a good job i mean who wants somebody looking over their shoulder the whole time hmm. interesting we're running out of time but i want to get your perspective gary you've been in dubai uae less than a year uh what's it like living here and how do you view the region not just in terms of vit hit but how do you view the region as an emerging market, right? In terms of it, hit, you're in established markets. You haven't entered other emerging markets like Latam or mm -hmm. India. Uh, do you think the Middle East is the right one to be in, and would you be optimistic around the region? Yeah, very. It's it's a really open open society. Um, you know, I. I didn't know what to expect because I came here on holidays for the odd weekend and we had a distributor here, but I didn't know what to expect. 
And uh, I'm really, really enthused and really happy that we moved here. Um, and I think it's a great base to, because it's, it's, it's totally a different part of the world than Ireland geographically uh, and um, strategically as well. So we, we can move from here to a, a whole different area. I mean, the plane rides from here, um, you know, you, you can just get to completely different places than you can from Ireland, obviously bar, you know, seven hours trek. So um, it's a really open place. Um, I'm very happy we moved here, albeit the one uh, caveat I would have is it's still stressful setting up here. You know, I know that they've they've done a lot of work to try and set up, you know, visas and being simple and all that kind of stuff, but it's still taking setting up bank accounts, company bank accounts, that all takes a long time. Mm. Um, and that is a bit of a stress. But other than that, it's it's been fantastic. So we're going to, we're basing ourselves here. Um, we're going to um, start distributing in the region where Kuwait is next, then probably Oman and then perhaps Saudi. So it, it's a great base to have here. So you're optimistic around the GCC not just the UAE. The UAE's economy numbers are quite good at the moment, yes. but you see perhaps that, you know, Vita can do well in, in Saudi Arabia and in Kuwait. 100%. And, you know, this, I've, I've been told in the past, oh, Vitit won't work here. You know, like I was explaining earlier about the distributor in, in, in uh, Belgium. Um, I never believe it because, and especially here, I can really see that, you know, Dubai is open for trade. Um, and, and I see the other countries opening now and they're ready for these kind of brands. Mm. And they're, excuse the pun, <clears throat> but they're thirsty for it. Yeah. People really want change. They want something different. They don't want to be drinking the same old sugary drinks all the time. And the younger people are now telling their parents, like kids in school, 16 years of age, kind of go, you know, mum, dad, why are you drinking that? Mm. You know, and they want something different. So you got to give it to them. Interesting. I could keep asking questions. Mm. Very interesting story. Uh, but just want to kind of finish on then, you know, you created the functional drink category in some markets. There's obviously already a category in the UAE, but maybe it isn't in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Do you think that you need to be more patient there for that category to develop out and for lifestyle patterns to change? Yes. Yeah. Um, like I say that we always put ourselves in a mainstream category you know we don't okay. really say look we are so different that you know you're going to have a hard time trying it or tasting it we put Fair ourselves enough. up beside all the sugary drinks in the main shelves yeah. so we want to be there beside the main guys so we'll get a taste and we'll do tasting and once people try it they kind of go oh yeah but yes of course you know um in, in Saudi, for instance, you know, uh, for a consumer, they haven't had that much of a broad uh, spectrum of products that they've had over the past. So they're only getting them now. But as, as a society, they are really hungry for change. They want extra products. So, mm. so I, I personally believe it, it'll be a little bit slower than Dubai per, um, per capita, per head. But um, people there really want change and they really want to try these kind of products. So absolutely. Brilliant. Good positive note to finish on. Brilliant story. Thank you for sharing Thanks and we'll follow Vitit in the future. Great. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you very much. So what a, what a story, what an impressive guy Gary is and what he's built uh, and he just celebrated his birthday yesterday. We were chatting afterwards and he's off uh, kite surfing and doing things like that. So he's loving Dubai, loving Dubai, uh, but he's really built a great business in VitHit and I know his product, uh, our producer Shahir was taking the VitHit drinks off the table. So I know his product is a hit uh, and wishing them all the success. And so thank you to Shahir and thank you to Ali as well who put this show together. Please do subscribe if you're listening on Apple, leave a review. Uh, and then if you're listening on any other audio podcast, please do send it to a friend uh, uh, or even just listen to any of the other episodes as well. Uh, not only that, you can watch the shows on smashy.tv uh, or any of the smartphone 
apps and some of the smart TV devices as well. Uh, We'll be back next week, 11 o'clock on Friday with another episode. Enjoy the weekend.